Thanks for listening to the Underdog Podcast presented by the Riley Decker Companies. Please do us a favor and help us change and improve lives by subscribing and giving us a rating on the platform of your choice. Thank you. I want to welcome Jay Williams to the Underdog Podcast. Welcome, Jay. Thank you for having me, man. You might hear my crazy daughter screaming in the background because we're dealing with a good, uh, we're dealing with a, a little bit of a hand foot mouth issue, uh, if you know what I mean. You you have three kids now, so you get exactly what I'm talking about, which is why I'm kind of like nervous. So I'm kind of staying in the office for the next couple of days. For sure, for sure. Well, we're girl dads unite. So super excited yes. and uh, all good. So just a little background is, is always a good thing. Um, First off, wanted to I've listened. So Ryan Hawk, a lot of that our listeners know, is my podcast mentor. Think the world of him. I listened to your episode with him a couple weeks ago. And I've I've listened to over two hundred episodes, Jay. And I, I listened to yours probably six times, the most I've ever listened. And it just resonated with me for many different levels. Um, I thought you hit a lot of different things in that episode. It was just really, really impactful. So anyone that's listening, go give that a shout, and hopefully you're going to enjoy what we're about to talk about here. But something that stood out, um, you said in there, if you're not living your life with passion, then what is your purpose? Are you just floating? Are you just there? You know, life will constantly throw stuff at you. If you allow life to dictate your tempo, you will constantly going and find out where am I? So can you kind of talk, just want to lead off with that, and then we'll get into your life journey? Yeah, you know, I've always been an extremely goal-oriented type of person. Uh, from the time I've been younger, my mother and my father have always kind of created an environment that's conducive to me having targets. And there are different tiers of targets, and they continue to scale over time. But for me, knowing what I had to accomplish gave me something to fight after each and every day. And I typically found myself that when I didn't have targets, I got myself in trouble. Right, I started to float. I started not doing things with uh, a concerted effort. Uh, there really wasn't intent behind my movement. I was moving for the sake of moving instead of moving with intent towards a goal. So, with that being my frame of mind, that has led me to become, you know, the first player from Duke to graduate school in three years, to becoming a two-time national player of the year, to become the second pick in the NBA draft to almost passing away after my rookie year, to being able to pick up the pieces and start the process of truly trying to reinvent myself and, and who I was and try to figure out just like every other 21-year-old in their 20s are trying to figure out who the hell am I? Am I what I do? Am I something different than what I do? And I think depending upon where you are in your life, those things can mold or those things can become detached. But if I didn't have smaller goals to start hitting these you know, these metrics, uh, inches above inches, then I, I, I never really in this position. So for me, whether that is listening to Esther Perel, who does incredible podcast work about my relationship with my wife, if that is reading different articles about how to deal with being a daughter's father and how to communicate to your daughter about different phases in her life, I just had a son six months ago. How can I be a good role model as a man to my son about how I treat my wife, how I communicate to my wife and my daughter? And the same with work. So for me, having goals and really thinking through what those goals are and recalibrating them each and every you know four and a half, five months has really helped me because sometimes goals can change depending upon what you're going through in your life at that particular time. But it helps me see things clearly because now I'm working with a concerted effort towards something instead of just existing. And I'm not saying there's nothing wrong with existing because sometimes you have to be present in order to see what's right in front of you. But I, I spent a lot of time earlier in my life after going through my injury being present. So I think I've really worked on that aspect of that craft. So I, I try to really enjoy moments while also having goals to give myself something to look forward to. No, yeah. Appreciate you sharing that. And one thing you talked about the injury, and I think I call it an underdog moment. Other people call it adversity, or maybe it was, you know, for some of our guests, it's it's actually tragedy that they had to overcome, uh, or a loss of a family member, or things like that. You had a pretty significant event, as I'd call it in your life, uh, the accident. And going back to that, those, as you mentioned, you had a 
one of the best careers, retired Duke, one of the best schools, if not the best school in college basketball. I actually grew up a Carolina fan, so all my Carolina fans. Same here. There you same go. Here. That's it's right. Okay. Yeah. Okay, same here. It happened that way. And I'm like, I got two. I have had Jay Billis on, and now we have Jay Williams. So I got all Duke guys. I actually just had Wes Miller on, uh, who's a Carolina guy now here at UC. Yeah. I'm actually here in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. So shout out to guy, my guy. My, yeah, yeah, I'm excited. Uh I think maybe that would be a hot, hot topic question where the Bearcats, they were predicted to be, I think, six in the AAC. So I was like, man, I was talking to Wes. I said, uh, you know, we'll see. Not a lot of, I know that the program's rebuilding, but I think he might shock some people here in Cincinnati. I agree. You know, I, I got a chance to meet Wes a long time ago. And one of the things that I always appreciate about him, you know, you you meet people that where their energy just feels different. Yep. Like it happens to me, like, you know, I, I meet celebrities. I meet normal people every single day. I love interacting with people, which, you know, glad to be somewhat back to normal on the, you know, still we're in the pandemic, but navigating that considering people are getting vaccinated things of that sort. And there's certain people that you meet where you're like, wow, that guy just has, or that person has a certain genetic qua. And for me, Wes has always had that special something just with the way he sees the game, but more importantly, the way he can communicate the game to his players and, and that's one of the things that I think is extremely lost in today's society. You have a lot of people who are brilliant, but to be able to translate that brilliance from your brain through your mouth and build people up, getting them to buy into what we are trying to accomplish instead of what I'm trying to accomplish, it is really a craft that I don't feel a lot of people have mastered these days because you're able to hide behind a lot of different vehicles due to technology, people have lost the ability to communicate face to face and to inspire and to get people to buy into things bigger than themselves. Yeah. And one thing I, I call it chips. It seems like he has a chip on his shoulder. You know, he's a walk on come from James Madison to Carolina when they were playing pickup games. You know, he was like he said he was always the last and rightfully so. When it was like MJ and Vince Carter and all these guys playing, it was like uh, Wes Miller, stay off to the side. But then when he got in, he was like, man, I'm jumping on the floor. I'm trying to just, you know, bang threes where I can. And so I think he has, and I think that goes a lot into listening to your leadership stuff, like core values, you know, overall and life values. And I think you've come from that, you know, your accident and you come back just like I, not to compare you to Kobe Bryant, but I think you remind me a ton of him. I know you, you know, that's one of your guys, of when the ball goes flat, what do you do? Um, you know, we're just talking about Coach Miller. I think he's impacting players. I think he's going to do big things here in Cincinnati. You, you know, go from, you know, a, a historic career, national champion, player of the year at Duke. You get injured while you're with the Chicago Bulls after being the second pick. But what you've done since that event, just like, you know, you had a choice, right? You either go back or you go forwards. As you said with Coach K, either you're proactive or you're reactive. And I, to me, you have taken steps forward. Can you go from, you know, that event of going through the motorcycle accident, how you were in depression and anxiety and alcohol, drugs, potentially those different things that you faced and you overcome that and where you've been going from there? Sure. I think there's so many correspondences between business and, and what's happened to me personally, to be frank with you. Um, you know, I went through a, life-altering event, man. And one of the things I recognized at the beginning stages of that journey was that I I tried to talk to people and really dig into their opinions about how I picked myself back up. And I recognized that a lot of people felt extremely uncomfortable because of the severity of the event that occurred to me in my life. And, you know, Steve Jobs, obviously, you know, the founder and creator of Apple, had an interesting quote that I heard a long time ago, is that, you know, A's higher A's, B's higher C's, right? And you're familiar with that. And I think around that juncture of my life, I never really thought, because in, in the game of basketball, to be frank with you, I like, I had to put in the time and effort to be in a gym in order to be the max level player I could be. Obviously, it's a team sport. and We as a team had to learn how to work together. And I think Coach K was brilliant in getting us to 
bring our egos down to a certain point that allowed all of them to connect to form one ego. Instead of having five individuals on the floor, we were acting as if we were one individual, but there was a lot of personal intensity on my part in order to achieve what I was able to achieve being in college and being a pro. But that wasn't necessarily the right algorithm for me to be successful after I got hurt, right? It was no longer like, hey, you can just go to physical therapy and do physical therapy every day by yourself for five hours. It was really about the kind of energy you kept around you on a day-to-day basis of individuals that push you to look at the opportunities in front of you. And that's the imperative and the operative word, opportunities. Because for a short stint after my accident, I focused on what was taken away from me. I wasn't focusing on the opportunities that were given to me. And I also found throughout talking to a lot more A's in life is that that old saying, make lemonade out of lemons. For a lot of people that were extremely determined when there was a bump in the road or when they were forced to take an alternative route to get to their goal, it was, hey, here are the opportunities in front of me, which evoked more of a positive, fierceful motivation type of effort towards their goals, right? It, it's all about, and there's so many similarities to sports. It, it, and Coach K gives a great analogy one time for me. My freshman year, I turned the ball over seven times in one game, okay? Uh, my assistant coach, Chris Collins, who's the head coach of Northwestern basketball, joking at me, he's like, man, you almost have, you almost have a quadruple double right? Uh, Because I had seven turnovers. And those seven turnovers were, they led all the way into like the last five minutes of the game. And my entire mindset for those, you know, what, 30, 35 minutes of the game in college was, man, I just turned the ball over and one negative thought went into another negative thought and that translated on the court. You saw that in my body language. You saw that in my hesitancy to shoot the ball. You saw that in my unwillingness to communicate to players on my team about where they had to be because I was being selfish. I was thinking about myself. I was thinking about me. I wasn't thinking about what we need to do. So when I talk about A's, higher A's, is when I started putting myself around people that saw the opportunities that the bumps in the road provided to them, it got me out of my own funk. It forced me not to be selfish, thinking about what is life taken away from me? I used to be this guy. I used to be able to be able to provide my family all their dreams. It was my opportunity to attain wealth, legacy type of wealth. You know, I always wanted to be an executive. So for me, Playing basketball allowed me to have a platform and a forum where I can invite, you know, 500 CEO companies. Um, I could invite, you know, top VCs and have dinner with me and talk about what investments that I want to partake in, what different startup businesses that I want to partake in, that I want to sit on any boards, that I want to start my own business. I focused on all that. Then all of a sudden, when I was around these type of people, they're like, well, you can still do that, but you have to think about a different approach to doing that. So for me, all of a sudden, instead of it saying, well, was me, I started thinking about, man, what are other avenues where I can still accomplish that same type of goal? And it, it got me out of my own head and it put me into such a different mindset. And I think your mindset has everything to do with determining your altitude. The two are mutually exclusive. Yeah. We think, I always tell mentality before reality. I I always tell people because you got to get out of your funk and vision where you're going. And it sounds like what you did. So kind of talk through that, Jay, if you can. So you, you, you know, to me, my feeling bad, you know, you said, all right, what, what can I do? I need to think positively, think and and pivot and move, right? Be flexible, adaptable, Mm -hmm. be able to respond to this event and now you start to go and you are one heck of an entrepreneur right you're doing all different media opportunities obviously with espn but you do now you're 
doing a podcast uh, with NPR that I think it's launching this December and you're about athlete empowerment, NIL, social justice. So how did you then, you know, pivot? And then how do you, I guess, focus and, and excel, in my opinion, at an elite level at all those different things I just mentioned? Well, I, I hope I'm excelling. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that I, I don't really look at it this way. I, I don't really, you know, I think one of the lessons I learned in college we, we had, Kate was so brilliant, man. I, I really can't describe the, the brilliance that I was fortunate enough to be around on a day-to-day basis for three years during the formative years of my life. I mean, from the time I was 17 until I was 20, 21, I got a chance to absorb one of the greatest thinkers in the history of sports. And one of the pieces of foundation that he set for me in my life is that we can go out and we could be the number one team in the nation by 40 points. But the next day, when we would have practice, we would watch tape. We wouldn't focus on a lot of things that we did right. We would focus on ways that we could tighten the ship and ways that we could be better. So there was always this blue collar workmanlike approach in every facet of the game. And I think for me, the way I look at it is that that's a spigot that should never turn off. My accident has perpetuated that to an even higher degree because now I realistically can sit here and say, I don't know how much time I have left here on this planet. I've been through this process before. So what kind of individual am I choosing to be? The one that sits around and floats or the one that lives his life with intention. And my intention now is a relentless effort to be better at everything I do. So the way you become better is once again, who's on your own personal board, right? I have a series of different boards in my life of individuals that help me formulate a think tank around what I'm trying to achieve. And one of the things I would like to achieve for my daughter and for my son and for my wife that my father and my mother set the right example to start the process is legacy and wealth, like legit wealth, where they can have a chance to really partake in their dreams and they can learn about financial discipline. They can learn about here's how your dad scaled a multitude of businesses. And here's also how your father prioritized being home with you guys at the same time. So I think I've been very fortunate to be around some incredible people through the access I've had through sports. And I was still able to capitalize on the same strategy. It just took a different route. So like I told you before, Kyle, the one thing I wanted to do before, I wanted to utilize the platform of basketball to provide me access into a plethora of opportunities. I got a head start of that a little bit with Duke. And then obviously having my accident kind of derailed that. But I looked at TV the same way, said, you know what? I'm going to work my ass off from the bottom up. First job at ESPN, CBS, I was making like $40,000 a year. I, um, it was a recalibration of my life. I'm carrying around my own camera equipment, but now I can set up my own camera equipment in my own office, right? I, I know how to work a teleprompter because I bought one and I studied and I wrote scripts and I started delivering dialogue. And I started looking at myself and talking to myself and hearing myself speak, because for me, if I could master the craft of communication and TV, that would be the same platform even better than what I had playing in the NBA. So I think taking that, those same principles and now making them applicable to doing TV, I've been able to scale my same dreams and aspirations just by a different route. Yeah, no, I... Man, I just love, I love it, love it. Knowledge, I call them knowledge nuggets. You are just dropping them left and right, man. Uh, wealth of knowledge. Something I, I'm in the employment business. We do staffing and recruiting as our main line. And something mm. that stuck out to me, and I would love for you to touch upon this to the listeners. You said the best retention for companies is really pretty simple. Believe in the mission that they can go and feel they can grab onto it. Can you kind of, because from your business perspective, throwing, throwing the business hat on here, I would love to hear more being in, in this line of industry I'm in 
about retention of employees, especially during this, you know, they call it the mass resignation going on right now. Everyone seems to be wanting to leave their current employment for something else. And so how do companies retain their employees from your standpoint? God, number one, you have to be aware. So prime example, during a pandemic for four and a half, five months, I worked every day from home. And one of the beautiful things about that opportunity, and I'm not sure if you went through this as well, because you have three kids and that's incredible. But before I used to be on the road, I used to go out, I used to travel, I used to feel so lonely, but that's what I was programmed to do, right? That was the only way I could really build my own business, sweat equity, being there in person, doing all these different things. And when the pandemic came, I was like, man, it's going to be so challenging. And there were a lot of series of challenges with the multitude of businesses I was involved in. But I learned something extremely important. My family, <laughs> right? So I, when I talk to other C-level executives, I, I, I always kick off conversations by saying, okay, first off, the pandemic has allowed me to recognize that my family is still very important to me. And that for these past five, six months, seven months, I've been able to spend incredible amount of time with my daughter, with my son, with my wife, time that I've never had before. So first off, how are you aware of that for your employees? How are you recognizing that, right? I think you've seen a lot of tech companies that have been extremely apprehensive to just say, hey, we want everybody, we're mandating everybody come back into the office. A lot of people say, hey, we, we kind of, we've orchestrated a new style and approach, work from home strategy. You know, we're, we're trying to do maybe a couple of times a week in the office where we're doing team events, where we're getting you to build more connectivity together, working like things so you can, you know, actually work on your relationship, but we're allowing more flexibility with the work environment. I think that's very important. The second thing I would say, and I think it happened, especially for companies that have become big quickly, is with the org structure that you have in place, what kind of dynamics relationship-wise are you creating? And there's two, there's two different types of relationship dynamics. There's a transactional relationship dynamic, and then there's a transformational relationship dynamic. The first is me as an everyday employee I want to get into work and out of work as soon as possible. We all know these people, Kyle, right? Yep. Hey, it's eight o'clock in the morning. What are you doing? Hey, I meet you at five o'clock. Happy hour, right? Already programmed to get you to five o'clock because they know as soon as five o'clock comes, they are out of there. Most of the time I've seen due to org structures, org structure is that these individuals don't really have a relationship with the people above them. It's more transactional. It's more, I need you to do A, B, C, and D. And you can do that at a minimum rate. And once you get in, you get out. The transformational relationship dynamic are little things that make people go so much further for you. Yep. So our conversation beforehand, Kyle, you told me that you just had a baby girl, right? Yep. Just had, how old is she? About uh, three months, three months, three months. Great. Yep. We're both in the non, we, we just don't sleep. That's what <laughs> nope. me and I do right now. <laughs> right. Amen. My son's six months. Exactly. Right. So imagine if I'm your boss or vice versa and I come into the office and I get there at eight o'clock exactly because, you know, I'm doing the bare minimum and there is a paragraph of a letter written on my desk that says congratulations on being a new father to a beautiful young girl. And that person remembers your child's name because they do research. And then they say, you know what? This Friday, you're off from work. I want you to spend this Friday with your baby girl. Think about what that dynamic structure does for you and your boss. All of a sudden, that small personal connection that he or she just established with you it, it, it makes you go beyond the basics in order to connect with them because now they're doing something for you. They've taken the time and the notice to say that they see you. Yep. That's important. People aren't seen anymore. People aren't patted on the back or praised anymore. 
or incentivize the right way. You can only incentivize me the right way if you know what I would like to accomplish. And, and granted, there are challenges with this as you scale businesses and bigger businesses have this, but I think I've been fortunate to be around a lot of incredible leaders. And when they talk to the people right beneath them work structure-wise, they really emphasize these human elements that I think sometimes have become remiss beforehand because we didn't feel like we had to be in tune with that. We didn't have to be as aware, but the pandemic has forced us to be more aware than ever before. And we didn't get into the whole social injustice situation that occurred you know, with George Floyd and all that stuff. So I think all of these things factor into how are you connecting with the individuals that work for you or that work with you at the same time? Yeah, and you're so right. I actually have a tangible deliverable. We, Jay, we actually, we gave uh, gift cards for people's birthdays and I wrote a note and it's like 10 bucks to go get coffee. Hey, have a coffee for your morning, for your, and that 10 bucks, we'll give out a thousand dollar bonus. But to your point, the $10, I get so much more feedback. Uh, thank you because we just, you know, we did hero bonuses during essential and we said thank yous and stuff, but we direct deposited and looking back once again, turning on the film, I wish we had done some things differently, but we paid bigger bonuses to people. Um, but say that's thousand dollars just for simplicity, the $10 we give to someone's birthday that they go get coffee and I write a personal letter. I'm telling you, you get, I got, we have 150 employees. I probably had a hundred plus people respond to that where the thousand dollars an average bonus, I got maybe 50. So to your standpoint, I personally have experienced that. So anyone that's listening, that's saying, I don't know if the, what Jay's saying is act. I have personally experienced that here at our company, uh, to your standpoint, because people do to your want to know that you care. Right. Yes. I think you, you said that too. It says leadership starts with a conversation. You need to know who someone is. And I, I heard that in the pot, your other podcast. And I said, sometimes things are just so obvious. They're not right. I mean, 1000%, you know, and so. it, it creates, I don't know if you felt this, but it creates an environment conducive to loyalty and respect. Right. So, Hey, look, another job opportunity that might have a higher ceiling might come across your table, but hopefully I've done enough for our relationship to warrant the respect from you to not just be one of those guys that, and we've all seen this before. People, we talk about retention rate, people that just come in and they quit and they're gone, right? There's no rhyme or reason. They're just, they're out, they're gone. And a lot of relationships I've had where people have gone off to different job opportunities have been like, hey, look, I feel for where I am right now, this is better suited for my family. This is better suited because of my lifestyle. And I want to say thank you for the opportunity. And at least that moment allows me to then talk to other owners of my business to say, okay, this person has came to me. How can we make this work? And I'm not saying that you know, when you run companies, it's not full of challenging decisions because it is. But at least having that relationship allows that person to either leave with respect or to stay and you understand what situation they're dealing with. And then you can make that decision on your own. And that goes a long way, man. Yeah. And I, and I think what I see, like you said, there's so much, what I try to translate as a business leader, and it sounds like you do as well, would love to hear your thoughts on how things were at Duke. But I was a walk-on, you know, uh, I had to earn a scholarship. So I was a walk-on for my first two years, played at Miami, Ohio. So I came in as a walk-on behind Big Ben. <laughs> and, I, and I stayed wow. as I stayed as a four-string quarterback. I was like the victory quarterback. So we were up on Bowling Green or OU or something. I would go knee down and they were all cheering for me, right? I was like the guy at the probably in the basketball sense, you go in the last minute and the Cameron Crazies are going nuts. Um I know you were you were obviously the player of the year, so you didn't know from that side. But the uh I guess where I'm going to with this is the way I try to look at it. And, it, and it, I'm sure you guys treated your walk-ons and it seems like coach K and even your star players took care of the walk-ons like they were anyone else. Miami did that for me. And I've tried to translate the locker room, the experiences from all the diversity, the, you know, all walks of life, even where I was at Miami of Ohio, plus I was a walk-on and they treated me better than anybody. And now I'll never forget that. I wasn't just a walk-on. I was I was a guy. It didn't matter if I had my school paid for or not. 
And I think that changed my life. I think, you know, sports, and I always, I'm involved with Miami and other schools you see here, because I think student athletes and that experience of coaches, you talked about how important your three years were with Coach K. Can you kind of talk, I know it was a long-winded kind of statement there, but the impact oh impact of the locker room in uh, translating athletics and treating people at Duke or any team, even with the Chicago Bulls or even now at ESPN, treating everybody, whether it's the janitor to, you know, Jay that's on college game day yourself, how that all goes into a big, you know, successful company or team. Well, I'll tell you a quick story. And he, he's a, he's a really good friend of mine. Uh, but I, I honestly had no idea. So my freshman year of college, you know, I was with a guy named Casey Sanders, a guy named Mike Dunleavy, a guy named Carlos Boozer. Uh, all these guys were McDonald's play, McDonald's, um, all, all, you know, was it McDonald's all Americans? I couldn't. Wow. That's when you know you've been up since two thirty. <laughs> McDonald's all Americans. Dad brain. Right? All good. Yes. Oh, <laughs> takes one to know one. Right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and for me, everybody had been the guy at their particular situation. Like, here I was averaging 28 points per game. Mike Dunleavy out in Portland was averaging like 30 points per game. Carlos Boozer was from Juneau, Alaska. He was averaging like 40 points a game. Casey Sanders was this tall athletic player from Florida who could just run like a gazelle, who could block shots out of anywhere, was the best defensive player in the class. And now all of a sudden we're coming to a team with Shane Battier, who was essentially – a role player his sophomore year before he became a star his junior year, a guy named Nick James. And I'll, I'll never forget because we're on the team and everybody had an ego, right? Not maliciously, but you just had an ego coming from where you came from. And myself and Dunleavy had went out one night to have a drink like any freshman would do it in, in high school and college. And I remember the next day at practice, I was horrific. In practice, I mean, it was one of those practices where you would go, oh, that's long night last night for me. And I'll never forget this. We're all watching tape and Coach K literally has this red dot attached to my ass. Like the red dot would not move off me. And this was really my first time watching myself and the type of energy level I gave each and every possession, because you didn't really watch tape in high school like that. So I found myself a multitude of times with my hands on my knees, breathing heavy. You see myself during timeouts, looking other places, not focusing in because I was just out of shape and I was tired. And he looks at me and he says, Jay, do you want to be an elite player? Not a good player, not a guy who is a third-team All-American. Do you want to be a National Player of the Year type of player? I said, yeah, Coach, I, I, yeah, of course. He's like, then why do you do things like this? Why are you training? Why are you giving me more energy, more effort? And what are you doing mentally to get yourself in the game 24-7, 365? Why is this not what you truly love? You just told me you love it, but you don't really love it. You don't know what is required of you loving something. I'll give you an example, Jason. What were you doing last night? Now, this is me as an 18-year-old kid, right? The natural uh, you know, mindset for me is to, I'm not going to tell maybe the greatest coach of all time that I was out partying last night. So you lie, right? Oh, you know, coach, I, I was just at home. Why are you lying to me? What do you mean? And when I was younger, and I would try different fibs, things of that sort. What do you mean, coach? What do you, what do you mean? I, I was home. And, and my whole reason was I was home. I was just home a lot later in the night, right? And he's like, I know you weren't home. You know why? Because Nick told me that you weren't home. So all of a sudden, I'm looking at Nick. Now, Nick is a ball boy on our basketball team. Nick is a very blue-collar, hardworking individual. And the managers on our team, I take that back, not ball boy, managers on our team were the guys that whenever we would fall down the court, they would run out, sprint, 
wipe down the floor, right? Hey, you need a water bottle here. Hey, coaches, have you, we're bringing all the balls here. We're getting you organized here. They were everywhere, relentless, right? I'm like, he's like, so you tell me you want to be all these things. Nick just told me that you're not these things. Do you know who Nick is? Now he's saying this to me, right? I'm like, no, he's, he's the owner of the Miami Heat, Jason. And I, at that moment in my life, 18 years old, I'm like, wow. Mickey Arison's son, Nick wow. Arison, now today CEO of the Miami Heat, the owner of Carnival Cruise, is a manager on our basketball team, handing me water, running out on the floor, wiping down wet spots. Holy shit. Wow. Mm. I need to change my mindset. What am I doing? Here's somebody that has everything that I want to attain, but his mindset is drastically different than mine. He's showing up every day, two and a half hours early. And I think at that moment, it was a great kind of light bulb moment for me because I realized, oh, in order for me to truly get to where I want to go, I need to put in a lot more effort and a lot more conviction because here's somebody that already has all that and look at the drive that he has. And now to see him doing what he's doing, I, I always joke with him. I say, thank you, because that moment changed my life. And that's the kind of work ethic that I think when you get a chance to see people who are extremely successful and how that family holds himself, that's what I want to create for my family. It was a mind-blowing experience for me. Yeah, that, I mean, that reminds me of a perfect example of servant leadership or, you know, high tide rises all boats or, you know, speed of leader, speed of the pack. I mean, just someone that's willing to do whatever it takes, find a way to win or be part of something. As you said, it's, it reminds me of a transformational relationship. Like you said, not transactional where you guys obviously had those, which makes Duke and any, you know, national championship team, I'm sure, or any successful organization successful as those relationships. And like you said, the work ethic, someone willing to do whatever it takes, whether it's mop the floor for the guy's sweat or, you know, you know, throw the jersey in the hamper. So that is, uh, man, what a story. Had no idea. And for him, right, you think about for him, because him and I talk about it, you know, he gets a chance to see who people really are and how they work. Right. And for him, and when you have to evaluate talent, it's just not about the talent that you have physically on the floor. It's about the mind set makeup that you have as an individual and how you approach the game, because they all go hand in hand. We know a lot of people that have talent, but don't have the drive. And whether you're a leader in a business, whether you're an athlete trying to make it in your respective sport, if you don't have that mindset where you want to be great and you're willing to do things that other people aren't willing to do, then you're not going to achieve the ultimate level of your greatness that you can reach. Your ceiling is always going to be something where somebody is going to utilize that word potential. And that's the one word I hate. When somebody says, oh, he has so much potential. I say, no, it's your job to continue to reach higher and higher. So that person says, you have reached that potential or you have reached your mark. Um, and that's what that experience taught me right then and there at 17, 18 years old. And I think getting uncomfortable, I, that's something I'm trying to yes. do. And as you probably tell before the podcast, I'm, I'm, I'm geared up for this. I've done a hundred, but I felt like, and Tessie's over here in her marketing next to me. She goes, man, you're nervous. I said, I've been wanting to do this guy. This is one of my top guys I've, I've wanted to do a podcast with. And, um, you know, I think it's just, it's, it was a little out of my comfort zone, even though I've done a million of these things, but it's, it's important to me, right? You said it's a passion and a purpose to deliver a message. And I think you've obviously done that in your life and you're doing it here to, to, as we conclude, you talk a lot about legacy, leaving an impact. What do you want? Cause you obviously had that near death experience. So after coming off of that, in I think 2003, uh, now doing tremendous amount of things as mentioned, what is that legacy you want to leave for your son and daughter, for your wife, for, you know, generations, as you talked about. I know, that's no, a deep, I know that's a deep question. <laughs> no, no, it's all good. It, it's a great question, man. It's a great question. I, um, I, I think 99.9% .9 of the time, a person who would be asked that question 
would try to articulate through words a feeling that they will want to leave within people. I don't want to articulate that because I think it would do an injustice to the feeling that I would want to leave, leave in people, especially in my family, when they think about me. You know, I, when I got hurt, I have a long scar that goes all the way from my ankle all the way up until my mid-thigh. And I'll be very transparent with you. You know, when I hit the utility pole, it separated my pubic symphysis as if I were having a child. And I had mm. a lot of nerve issues down in that region of my body for a very long time that I was very unsure if I would ever be able to have a family. And when I had my daughter and now having a son as well, it is, you know, Dale Carnegie wrote this book um, talking about pretty much every human being is hardwired to self-preserve, right? Self-preservation. And it's this book that talks about how to win friends and how to influence others. And his three principles that he talks about are never condemn others, never criticize others, and don't complain, right? And I just went through a situation on live TV with probably the most powerful man in sports media right now, Stephen A. Smith, where we had to debate a real polarizing, sensitive subject about Kyrie Irving. And I think this is very translatable to a lot of workplaces as well, because it's the pulse of our society. And I am double vaccinated. I caught COVID earlier before I got vaccinated. I also caught COVID post-vaccination with the Delta variant at the NBA Finals, where I had to remove myself from the NBA Finals. Uh, Carl Anthony Towns and I are somewhat close. We went to the same high school. I knew his mother, Jackie Towns. He's lost five family members. We've lost you know, hundreds of thousands of people, 700 plus thousand people. And it's a very scary time for a lot of people. And I found myself at this juncture with Stephen A. Smith on live t- TV talking about Kyrie Irving. And I guess the reason why I tell you this is there's so many people that are so adamant about, and people speak now like we talk to each other as if we're in social media, right? In absolutes, in harsh tonalities. And I think throughout the process of people telling people who are unvaccinated how stupid they are or how selfish they're being, we've lost the ability to be empathetic, to build bridges with one another. I would like for a lot of people to get vaccinated, but I think how you communicate with those people matters. Right. Because when you're attacked, you're forced to be in a corner. You dig your heels in the sand even more. So for me, battling Stephen A live on TV and holding my ground about, this isn't about business. This is about human beings and how we are hardwired and learning how we need to be more unified in our approach and how we need to communicate to each other. That to me felt like a legacy defining moment for who I am as a person and how I want to be remembered. And the more things I do like that, the more people I feel like I can touch and leave my imprint on like that, where I say, I see you. I have different experiences than you, but I still see you. And I don't think my experiences are more or less than yours. I think we're the same, even though society has me on a quote unquote different level because I'm in TV or I get, I bleed just like you do, man. I, my feelings get hurt. I get moody. I get emotional just like you. So from obviously there's a legacy side wealth-wise, but I think more importantly than that, I want my kids to be empathetic. I want them to connect and build bridges with people and see people for everything they are. 
and appreciate that because when I almost passed, it put a lot of shit in my life in perspective. Sure. Because I let too many moments just fly by where I didn't see things. So I'm so, so myopic about what I needed to do. And I, I, I tried to explain it, but more so I, I want my kids, I want my family to have that feeling with me. That's important. That's what I want my legacy to be. That feeling that that moment gave me and hopefully it gives other people. Yeah, no, powerful, man. Powerful, powerful. I know the one thing, you know, talking with Ryan and, and just watching your body of work, the one thing I love about you and not saying it's is not other people aren't necessarily like this, but you're genuine in, I feel like the Jay Williams I've seen on TV is who I'm talking to now and who I would talk to in, in the room you're in, if it was just you and I, and I think that's super important because you are leaving a legacy because you know, just listening. I'm like, wow, just you're, you're, that's so true. Like you got to, we got to unite right in everything, whether it's vaccine, non-vaccine, you know, all the race differences, all the different things going on in the world. Like you said, you got to listen or how you talk to each other. So then, you know, his guard might be up because like you said, it's not what was said. It was how it was said or how it was approached or, you know, have a conversation, like talk through it, be proactive versus reactive on trying to get out in front of things. And I think there's so much to your message. Um, really appreciate you sharing that with us today and what you're doing, obviously on a daily basis, uh, in front of the world. So, um, well, I got to tell you, man, if you were nervous before this interview, wow, you do a hell of a job. <laughs> I mean, I can't imagine to see you when you're relaxed. Uh, yeah, well, I was, I'm telling you, man, I was fired up for this one. I, I really, you know, think of the world of your, what you're doing and, um, your body of work and, and love watching you. And, uh, whenever you're in Cincinnati, man, look it up. I'm, we're, we're at all the Bearcats, uh, basketball games. So if you're ever doing a game, uh, please hit me up and would love to, Love to see you. Say hello. And uh, last question. We always ask this one. If there was one person you would recommend to come on the Underdog Podcast, who would it be and why? I, I would tell you, it's actually a really good friend of mine. And I'll tell you a quick story now. I'll give you a quick note version. So this friend of mine, I was on my way back from a plane ride and I was uh, you know, sitting on a plane in L.A., on a red eye coming back to New York. And this guy sat down next to me and we started having this incredible conversation. And we exchanged cards and afterwards, you know, he was telling me about his two boys and, you know, they play football and he was living in New Jersey and I'm from New Jersey. And we just really hit it off. And he's like, hey, look, you know, I love your story. I would really love if you came and you spoke at my company. And I said, you know, sure. So I came over, I, I spoke to his company. And at the time he was the CMO of Mondelez. And we developed a really good relationship. And I'll never forget, because it, it, was, it was a huge life lesson for me. Because obviously I told you I've always strived to be, you know, a C-level executive, right? So I'm watching this guy who's traveling all across the world, has this incredible job, has brands like Oreo cookies, all these incredible brands underneath the umbrella of Mondelez. And we had dinner one night and he's like, I'm going to leave him on the lease. I'm like, wait, what? Like you're on trajectory to become a CEO. What are you, what are you talking about? Like this could be, what are you going to do? And what's your reasoning behind it? And he says, well, my first son, I didn't really get a chance to see him play a lot of high school football. And I really regret always being on the road. And my second son now is entering high school. And I promised myself that I would be more present. For him and my older son, I want to go watch him play in college more. So I'm going to take a different job and I'll be closer to home and my hours will be less and it'll be better for me spiritually, mentally, physically, everything for my wife, my life, all these. I said, okay, that's great. But you know, in the back of my mind at this juncture, I'm like, hey, that's really even a huge opportunity on the table. And this man literally left his job went to a smaller CEO position at a smaller company called Pinnacle Foods, had a lot of different brands underneath him, stayed for multiple, several years, worked his tail off, saw his son play high school football, saw his son graduate, saw his son graduate from college, from Tufts University, and then go off and work in the city for a bank. And out of nowhere, private equity came in and bought him out at like a 9X. 
Wow. And I'm sitting there saying, oh my God. And he had transferred all of his stock pretty much from Mondelez into this smaller company. And I sat there and said, he just got rewarded for prioritizing his family. You never hear stories like that. Wow. Yeah. You never hear stories like that. Nope. And he took time off and now he's the CEO of Campbell Soup and his name is Mark Klaus. And he is one of the, you know, A's are around A's. He's one of those A's in my life. And I would tell you that he is a dear, dear best friend to me. Sure. And some of the things he's been through, man, as an executive, I could have named like a, you know, an artist or an athlete. But um, I love it. He's inspiring to me, man. You would love, love who Mark Klaus is as yeah. a person. We'll have to, uh, might have to have you help me make that happen, but that would be incredible. We haven't had as much business folks on here, but I would, you know, I think our listeners would, would obviously enjoy that. And what a story, you know, <laughs> yeah. being there for his kids and it just, you know, that nine X or oh, shoot, I, ooh, I wish I could get a, a nine or 10 X. That would be. Uh, I'm like, how come you didn't hit me with an email? I could decide to go small investment. That's what we're friends for. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe he'll adopt me. Maybe he'll adopt me into his family. Uh, (laughs) No, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's what a, what a great story. Yeah. It'd be great to have Mark. Well, um, on behalf of the underdog podcast, really appreciate it, Jay. How does anyone, um, follow any, any handles, websites, anything that you would like to steer towards any content? Yeah, man. My handles are at Real J Williams across all platforms. Uh, I have an NPR podcast dropping December 7th. It's called The Limits. And essentially, you know, what you and I are doing right now is a similar trait. Be able to talk to people like Chris Jenner, uh, Dwayne Johnson, some uh, incredible Peter Goober, just about, you know, how they've scaled their own businesses. And I, I, I truly believe you said something to me, God. I, I, I really like to say thank you because. I firmly believe that we're in an age now where you can no longer not be who you say you are when you're trying to scale a business. Uh, You have to be authentic. And the things that you say behind closed doors are the same values that you need to have when you walk into the public eye. I mean, we've seen that with John Gruden, you know, with the head coach of the Oakland Raiders right now and what's happening with him and emails between him and Bruce Allen. And there's no longer that world. And people are so quick to sniffing out when you're, you know, not authentic. So that would be, that's a passion project of mine to work for NPR. I've listened to that since I've been a little boy and I look forward to bringing that kind of culture, that swag to it and uh, have in-depth conversations like the one you and I just have right now. Yeah. Love. I can't wait to listen. And uh, you have a big fan over here and can't wait for our listeners for this to be released and uh, wish you nothing but the best, and I know you're going to keep doing great things. Thanks for impacting the world, leaving a legacy, and really appreciate your time, Jay. Thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Underdog Podcast. Please subscribe and rate our podcast on the Apple and Google Podcast apps. Leave a five-star rating and send our Twitter handle a screenshot of your rating at Underdog Pod with your shirt size for a chance to win a free t-shirt. See you next week on the UDP.